1907, Robert Service, an emigrant from Scotland to the Yukon Territory, published a collection of poetry based off of his time working as a cowboy during the gold rush. And as somewhat of a contrast to the wisdom of scripture, he writes what is arguably a beautiful poem, The Spell of the Yukon. And he opens it, writing, I wanted the gold, and I sought it. I scrabbled and mucked like a slave. Was it famine or scurvy? I fought it. I hurled my youth into a grave. I wanted the gold, and I got it. Came out with a fortune last fall, yet somehow life's not what I thought it. And somehow the gold isn't all. In these lines, service captures something that that rings true for each of us, especially those not in Christ. That we can set our minds on things and pursue them earnestly with every fiber of our being, and then when we finally attain it, when we finally get what we were looking for, it's a bit of a letdown. It can leave us feeling hollow, perhaps like we were cheated, perhaps like we were duped. But Paul, in Romans 8, says nothing of the sort. He sets out a wonderful truth for those who are united with Christ. After his lament of 724, where he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He turns and begins to answer his question in chapter 8. And he begins to build up his argument that the believer, united to Christ, is set free from the law of sin and death to life in Christ. And so by the time we get to verse 5 of chapter 8, the train has built up enough steam to leave the station, as it were. And Paul shows us the two paths that lie before either the path of the flesh or the path of the spirit, either the path that leads to death or the path that leads to life and peace. And so Paul's thought in this passage is organized into three main groups. The first is the mindset of the flesh, the second, the mind of the spirit, and the third, somewhat larger group, is the result of either of those mindsets. So to the first point, the mindset of the flesh. In verse 5 where he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And we can tend to read this as Christians, that this isn't talking to us, perhaps. Perhaps this is one of those passages that's for other people. It's certainly not for me, right? That's, that's our comfortable place to read it. And yet, is that correct? We must be aware of to whom Paul wrote this letter. He wrote it to those loved by God and called to be saints. And so this, this fact that he lays out, this warning, ought to be something that drives us to examine our own heart and turn to Christ. You see, the mindset of the flesh is the inevitable consequence of being separated from Christ. And those who are separated from Christ can only pursue the mind of the flesh. And in our fallen state, we are separated from God. From Genesis 3 onward, in man's fallen state, we are alienated from God. And we see this in the guilt and corruption of sin. And yet, we still have this impulse to do that which God created us to do, to worship But we turn our worship instead of the living God and we worship ourselves. We worship the things that we can make. And this is the nature of idolatry and this is descriptive of the life governed by the flesh. And the wording here indicates that the flesh, more than merely being the object of your mindset, is in fact the thing that calls the shots. Paul is describing the flesh as in the driver's seat, directing your mind. And so what does it mean to set your mind on the things of the flesh? Well, first, we need to understand that for Paul, the mind is not reflective of some head-heart dichotomy, some separation that intellectually I'm one way, and, but really I'm another way. That's not what Paul is saying. You see, Scripture and Paul have a unity of head and heart. 
They're describing all of the person, the affections, the desires, the will, the actions. And in fact, we see this in Mark 8.33 where Christ rebukes Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block for me. Why? For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Was it merely that Peter's intellect was pursuing the things that lead to death? No, he was truly embodying the mindset of the flesh at that time. So the mindset of the flesh seeks the desires that are sinful and contrary to the will of God, to the expense of the glory of God. And yet Christ has delivered believers from this power. Christ has delivered us from the power of sin and death. And this is where Paul picks up his argument in 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And this takes us then to the mindset of the Spirit in the second half of verse 5. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What does it mean to live according to the Spirit? Well, this cannot be separated from union with Christ. And this is the context in which Paul is stressing over and over again that we are united with Christ. This is what he starts chapter 8 with, and this is where it continues all the way through. You see, Paul is unequivocal in his insistence that we have the mind of Christ if we are united with Christ. And this is tremendous good news for us who are in Christ. And it's only possible because of the redemptive work of Christ. And moreover, not only when Christ was here in his state of humiliation, but even more so now in his state of exaltation, we see when Christ tells his disciples in John 16, it's to your advantage that I go away. This wasn't tongue-in-cheek. It really is to the advantage of the disciples because he sends the helper. This was his promise to us, and he has delivered on this promise. So brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, you have the mind of the Spirit. And Jesus sends this Spirit to you because he is presently sitting at the right hand of the Father, reigning on behalf of his people, of his church, and for your good. And so it's no wonder then that Paul's conclusion to this whole section ends with, what are we to fear with this God on our side? So Paul is telling us here what this life governed by the Spirit looks like, by the victorious and reigning Christ, sovereignly and seriously governing your mind. So what does that really mean then? Well, Paul explains this perhaps a little bit more clearly in Colossians 3, where he says, set your mind on the things that are above, not the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. This is the first commandment. Have no other gods before me. And this is what Paul exhorts. The mind of the spirit aggressively avoids idolatry. And one has said famously that anything you love more than God is an idol. It robs God of his rightful place in your affections. But by the working of the spirit, you who are now free from bondage to sin and death can turn your mind from idols. You can begin to love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you've probably heard that the best defense is a good offense. And there's a major reason for that. The primary defect of defensive thinking, whether tactically or in sports, is that the best outcome 
of a defensive position is not victory. The best outcome of a defense is simply not losing. That's what the goal of a defense is. At some point, whether you're on the sports field or on the battlefield, you must pivot to the offense to take the fight forward, to move the ball down the field. And that's exactly what spiritual warfare describes. We are not merely passive recipients of blessing now who sit back and ride it out for the rest of our lives. But no, this this truth of our justification, of our union to Christ, has implications that we can, in fact, go on the offense and can, in fact, seek to put to death the old man, to aggressively and ruthlessly put to death the things of the flesh to pursue the mind of the Spirit. And this is where Paul goes in Galatians 5 as well, with the fruit of the Spirit. What does this look like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things upon which the believer should set his or her mind. These are the things which the believer ought to earnestly pursue, and these will be the things that show you to be radically different from the world. And yet, even beyond the ultimate landing point for Paul, there's a point that lands for each of us. None of us in our Christian lives are sinless. 20 seconds as a Christian will prove that to you. We pursue the things of the Spirit, and we seek to please God, and yet we fall into temptation. The mind of the flesh that Paul warns about here, though it is the only option for those not united with Christ, still seeks to be vivified. It still seeks to come to life and to wage war against you. And we see that in our little safe sins. The little things that we carve out space in our hearts and think, well, maybe this isn't that big of a deal. Maybe, maybe this one won't matter. And so as we read in Psalm 51, once you do those things, are you now cut off from God? No, the mind of the Spirit turns. As the inscription of that psalm says, this was after his sin with Bathsheba, where David had fallen tremendously, and yet David is still the king, the man after God's own heart. And by the grace of God and the indwelling power of the Spirit, he can turn and truly offer right sacrifice. He can truly turn in repentance. And this is the posture of the Christian with the mindset of the Spirit when encountering our sin. It is repentance. It is turning from sin and turning to Christ alone. So yes, we can expect to struggle against remaining sin, but brothers and sisters, this does not spell the end of the road for us. We cannot fall. If you are in Christ, if your name is in the book of life, if you have put your trust in Christ, can you fall so far that Christ cannot reach you? Is it any harder for God to pick you up from that position than from before you knew him? And you can be assured of your salvation. It's not our will and our effort that causes our salvation. It's God's. And so when you fall, when you turn, and when you see the rearing up of the mind of the flesh, and you say, perhaps this is it, perhaps this is the end for me, it's not. Because you have been given the gift of grace in Christ Jesus, and you've been given the ability to grow in the things of the Spirit. And how does God do that for us? He does it in his Son, and now with his Son reigning on the throne, what has he given to his people? But the means of grace. And in Paul's context of union, of communion with Christ, 
perhaps the most salient point, is of prayer. Prayer is our way that God has given to us. As Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. This prayer leads us more and more back to God. In prayer, we are conforming our image, the image of our mind to the image of Christ. We learn more about God. We learn to talk with God and to pray with God, to walk beside him. And what a blessing that is. After years and years of struggling and toiling and constantly being in prayer to see that the God who has called you is faithful and he has led you. And the Puritans in some of their better writing have, have added a grace that God gives to us in trials as a way of seeing this. I see Peter, they didn't, they didn't come up with this on their own. Peter, of course, writes this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes your way, as if something strange were happening to you to test you, but rejoice. And so the Puritans took that seriously, and they said there must be a reason for God to give us trials. And what is the outcome of trials when God has sustained you, if not greater trust and faith in your Savior? See, we never look forward to trials. We don't say, oh boy, I can't wait for more of that. And yet, at the end of it, looking back, we often see that that was God's most powerful working in our life. That through that, you've learned to grow more and more in your trust and in your love for the Lord. And what a grace that is. I grew up in Georgia, hiking along the Appalachian Trail fairly often, and I somewhat take it for granted that it was always easy to go out and put weight on your back and walk through the mountains. It can't be that hard. But if you've been in any, spent any time around a toddler, you'll realize very quickly that it took some getting used to for you to be where you are. And seeing my toddler as she tries to hike alongside us, stumbling at things that you wouldn't have even noticed, and she would fall if it wasn't for the fact you're holding her hand. See, she doesn't get any better at walking by being carried but by struggling through and learning to handle the little hills and valleys, the little obstacles, she's prepared now for a bigger obstacle. Pretty soon she crawls up the stairs and gets herself into worse trouble and shows that she is learning more and more. You see, some of the most beautiful sights on any hike can only be seen from the top of the most difficult climbs. And God is not content to leave us down in the valley but to take us by the hand and to lead us. So this takes us to the result of our mindset. And first we will look at the result of the mindset of the flesh. And Paul devotes a significant amount of this section to the mindset of the flesh. The first half of verse 6 and verse 7 and verse 8, he says, For to set the minds on the things of the flesh is death. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul here says the mindset of the flesh is death. Not perhaps death, not leads toward a direction that could go to death. In fact, literally, it just says the mind of the flesh, death. That's how succinct it is. That's how simple it is. If your mind is governed by the flesh, it leads to death. And what kind of death is this? Well, for those of us who are in Christ, who experience this tension, are we worried now that we'll lose everlasting life when we see the results of the mind of the flesh? Well, this is the havoc 
This death is havoc, the chaos, the terror of living outside of God's law. This is, this is the death that intruded into David's life when he gave into the sin with Bathsheba and then compounded it and compounded it and compounded it, killing and hiding and lying before the prophet of God came and said, you haven't been hiding at all. God knows. And yet there is still temporal turmoil that results from sin, and we all know this to be true. You see, we need not look far for death because death is simply abandoning God's law, the safe haven that he has given to us in which to live. As freedom-loving Americans, we often have the mindset that the law is there to stop us from doing things that are for us, that are good, that are right. Why not do 85 miles an hour? The law says, have less fun. But is that God's law? That is absolutely not God's law. You see, God's law tells us about God's character and tells us why he made us and what he wants us to do. The painful irony is aside from Christ, we cannot do anything toward it. But in Christ, with a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude, we can begin to live in accordance with what God has called us to. And yet, if the law means nothing, then Christ means nothing. And that is terrifying. And that is absolutely not true. You see, the law was given for good. And Christ, who fulfilled the law for you, has clothed you in the righteousness that only comes through perfect fulfillment of the law, his own righteousness. And this is what the mind of the flesh seeks to to put to death, to say that's not true for you. You can't possibly be counted as righteous. There's no way God could love you. But when God looks at you, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, he sees only his son. And that gives us tremendous hope. But Paul says also the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. And this shows once more that the mind of the flesh is not passive. It doesn't sit on the sidelines rooting for maybe you to make a bad decision, but is actively seeking to smother you. This is not even really about you anymore. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. The mind of the flesh is angry at God and striving against God. And this doesn't sound at all like the Christian life. This sounds like the work of the kingdom of darkness. And when it's put in those terms, it becomes clear. But often those terms are couched and they're hidden. And the lie of the garden sounds so appealing. Did God really say That's the kind of war that is waged against the righteousness of God. It is insidious, and it is deceptive, and it is a lie. And then we see that the mindset of the flesh neither submits to God nor pleases God. And that is, it just makes sense, doesn't it? This mindset that seeks to wage war against God, that seeks to turn kingdoms of light into kingdoms of darkness, these strongholds, of death, how could God look at them and be pleased? They do not seek to submit to God. They instead turn and place their trust in a lie. And misplaced trust is one of those things that can seem so innocuous at first and yet can lead to such calamity. In 1979, there was a sailing race off the coast of Ireland. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a fastnet race, and it continues on. 
And the sailors set out on this race, and they looked up, and the winds were blowing well. The race was off to a good start. Ted Turner was doing great before he started Turner Broadcasting. And they looked at the clouds, and there was one sailor who's remarked as having said, you know, there's an old saying, mackerel scales, reef your sails. The clouds looked ominous, and they knew they should have gone in, but they turned on the radio, and what did the weather radio say? The weather radio said, fair winds and good weather, press on. And a Force 10 gale struck that race and resulted in almost complete catastrophe. Nearly all the boats were lost, and many sailors lost their lives. They put their trust in the wrong thing. Rather than what was plain and clear and revealed to them, they put their trust in a lie through the static of the radio. And you see, Paul doesn't have any room for that. You start Romans in chapter 1, and you see creation shows us the glory of God. We were made in the image of God, and we know the truth. We know that pursuing the mind of the flesh leads only to death. We know that we ought not listen to those whispered lies. So is it any wonder that those things do not please God? And yet, brothers and sisters in Christ, this should give you tremendous hope. You say, how could that possibly give me hope? Well, if you have any inkling of submitting to God, if you desire to please God and you wage war against your flesh and you say, how could I possibly still have sinned? You still recognize that you have sinned. And that is a gift from God. That is a gracious working of the Holy Spirit. And to you, Scripture says, fan into flame the gift that has been given to you. Trust in Christ and be confident by the equipping of the Spirit. You, too, can fight against this great foe because the battle has been won in Christ. But to those who've never desired to submit to God, who've never once thought, my sin is weighing upon me, who have no desire to please God, do not wish to submit to God, this is a tremendous warning. And I would plead with you, why are you waiting? Turn to God. Turn to Christ. Embrace him. And he will not lead you astray. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd, and the voice of the shepherd is truth. You know it. Turn to God. But the result of the mindset of the Spirit, what does this turning to Christ mean for all of us in Christ now? And this is the central point of Paul's passage. In verse 6, the second half, he says, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And see, this is the exact opposite of the mind of the flesh. As the mind of the flesh only leads to death, only leads to chaos, only leads to God's displeasure, the mind of the Spirit leads to life and peace. And it can only lead to life and peace. As Paul's language said, mind of the flesh, death. So he says, mind of the Spirit, life and peace. There could not be a starker contrast. And there is no open possibility of failure for the Spirit. This is not a statement of probability, but of fact. This is life guaranteed by the Spirit which leads to eternal life. As Jesus warned us of the eternal death that those outside of Christ face, for those of us in Christ, the only result possible is eternal life. The healing of relationships now, the love and the joy of the fellowship that starts now and is viewed as through a glass dimly will be seen fully 
in the world to come, and we can confess with the Nicene Creed that we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and life in the age to come. And so we can see why as Paul starts this, brothers, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This peace God guarantees by his spirit, this peace is the peace that Israel looked forward to as rest from their struggling in the promised land. This peace is the peace won by Christ, who for our sake became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And this peace brooks no hostility. There is no hostility anymore with God. This is the peace longed for by anyone in any conflict ever. This is the peace that regards strife like a tank regards a leaf pile. This is an everlasting peace and reconciliation with God. And this is what we were made for, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, being at peace with our creator. And this is the peace that is in view when our Lord offers us living water. And he says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So we have seen the options here that Paul has laid out. The reality of the struggle that we face. And Paul leaves us with these two great indicatives. Either the flesh or the spirit. These are the ways before us. Either we'll bow to the flesh or we'll bow to the almighty God who graciously gives us his spirit. And brothers and sisters, if your mind is governed by the spirit, you'll find that all of God's creation does, in fact, proclaim his glory, that there is peace to be had, and you'll see things rightly in the light of your reconciliation with God. And that's what's at play in Robert Service's poem. He wanted gold, he thought. He wanted wealth. But he found that that wasn't actually what he was searching for. And he concludes his poem saying, There's gold and it's haunting and haunting. It lures me on as of old. Yet it isn't the gold that I'm wanting so much as just finding the gold. It's the great, big, broad land way up yonder. It's the forest where silence has lease. It's the beauty that fills me with wonder. It's the stillness that fills me with peace. And Robert Service still missed the point, didn't he? The peace that he sought, that he yearned for, that he found was the thing that was missing in his life. He misplaced. And he thought he could find it by going to mountains and getting away from the city. And yet, it didn't stay with him. And it always left him thirsting for more. But for you, in Christ Jesus, there is no need to travel to the Yukon to find a peace that will leave you thirsting. Because we have been given peace by the victorious and reigning Christ. Peace through his spirit now, and peace that will never leave us thirsting again. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now, we ask that you would put to death the old man in us, make alive in us the new. We ask that you would equip us by your spirit to pursue the things that are above, and that you would give us life and peace abundantly for your glory and for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.